This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and wider world. This for the EU is quite new because in the past it was always, oh yes, we're going to stand up to them, but not if it means any sacrifice on our side. Hello again and welcome back to Global Europe Unpacked, a series by commonspace.eu in collaboration with the city of The Hague in which we host conversations on the future of Europe in the world. I am your host, Will Murray, and in today's episode, we are going to be looking at the future of EU hard and soft power, especially in light of the tragedy unfolding on the European continent with Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Since its establishment, the EU has relied on soft power, such as diplomacy, as well as economic instruments as its main foreign policy tools, leaving hard and military power to its member states and the main Western military alliance, NATO. The concept of EU hard power is hardly new, but has by and large remained, up to now, abstract. However, in light of the EU's growing place in the world, and recent events in Ukraine exposing threats that were thought to have been consigned to the history books, what was once inconceivable is now starting to gain ground. To address this topic, I shall be speaking to Dr. Jamie Shea, Professor of Strategy and Security at the University of Exeter. In Series 1, I spoke to Jamie about EU strategic autonomy and whether it was compatible with the NATO alliance. For those interested, I've put a link to the first series in the information for this episode. With things moving so quickly, it's important to note that this interview was recorded on Friday the 11th of March 2022. But without further ado, let's get started. For this conversation, I'm very happy to be joined once again by Dr. Jamie Shea. Jamie has held a number of senior positions in NATO and is known for being the alliance's spokesperson in 1999 during the Kosovo War. Until 2018, Jamie was the NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges and is currently a professor in strategy and security at the University of Exeter. So, Jamie, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Will, thank you very much for this second invitation to be once again on the podcast. I want to speak a bit about um, EU EU power here. And I mean, since its establishment, the EU has relied on soft power as its main foreign policy tool. However, in light of its growing geostrategic ambitions, is EU hard power necessary? It certainly is necessary, Will, uh, because obviously the EU now lives in a much more dangerous uh, neighbourhood uh, to the south in terms of what's happening in, in Africa with the spread of jihadism, the spread of Russian-Chinese influence in, in Africa. Uh, obviously, the continuing turmoil in the Middle East, uh, in Syria, the war in uh, Yemen, uh, the whole issue of how it engages a, a vital but sometimes difficult partner like Turkey, which is still a candidate for the EU. EU. And now, of course, we are obviously going to talk about this today, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. And the EU is currently conducting an exercise called the uh, Strategic Compass, uh, another document, but an important document, which is due to be finalised at an EU summit in two weeks' time, which is going to sort of reflect the fact that uh, the whole European neighbourhood, the uh, international security environment has deteriorated, and the EU can't sort of just get by uh, by pronouncing a belief in democracy or values or belief in globalisation or by it being simply an economic power. Uh, as Ursula von der Leyen said uh, when she took over the presidency of the EU Commission, the EU needs to be a, a, geo, uh, a strategic geopolitical actor. 
And uh, we'll talk about this later, but it's trying to develop its military capabilities and it's trying to demonstrate in the Ukrainian crisis that it does have this capability to be a more geopolitical actor uh, and go beyond simply imposing sanctions. And, and you mentioned there this strategic compass. So can you tell us a little bit more of what this is about? Well, this exercise started well be, before Russia invaded Ukraine, and it came out of the EU global strategy back in 2016, which already sort of recognised that the world wasn't going in a, an EU type of direction, you know, towards uh, multilateralism and strong international organisations and everybody respecting the rule of law and everybody renouncing the use of force to settle uh, disputes. Uh, there were already a number of warning signs uh, back then. You know, Russia had annexed the Crimea in 2014. We spoke about this in the last podcast. Russia had sent its forces into uh, uh, also the Donbass area of Ukraine. You know, China was beginning to flex its muscles uh, in the South China Sea and vis-a-vis uh, uh, Taiwan. Uh, you had Gulf states also resorting to armed force like Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates or Iran uh, in terms of Yemen. So already back in 2016, there was this sort of wake-up call that the EU uh, had to uh, have teeth, um, uh, could not, if you like, only be a vegetarian dinosaur uh, in the jungle, but had to sort of be able to deal with the meat-eating uh, dinosaurs as, 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 as well. And there, uh, uh, that document gave rise to this uh, term strategic autonomy, um, uh, which has been yep. interpreted in different ways, but the notion that the EU had to, number one, uh, reduce its dependencies on our outside actors uh, so that it would obviously not be liable to blackmail or coercion in a crisis. Uh, it had to diversify its supply chains. It had to diversify its uh, energy supplies um, so that uh, it would be more resistant to shocks to the system, you know, improve its cyber defences, uh, improve its critical infrastructure protection. But also, on the other hand, that the EU had to have more instruments uh, in the so-called uh, toolbox um, that it could use to respond to crises, including developing its military capabilities. So it started in 2016, and the idea of the strategic compass was to try to get, for the first time ever, the EU member states to agree to a threat assessment. They've never been able to do this before because, you know, the way in which they've looked at Russia, the way they've looked at China, uh, you know, the way they've looked at Turkey, other actors has often been very, very, very different according to whether they trade a lot with Russia or don't trade a lot with Russia, for instance. So the fact that in this document for the first time they've agreed on a joint threat assessment, in other words, they see the world largely through the same lens, is a big move forward. The second thing about the strategic compass is that it identifies the sort of things that the EU needs to have and to be able to do. Uh, And uh, it's more like a military planning document which gives more concrete advice to EU planners as to, you know, what kind of capabilities, what kind of technologies uh, uh, they need to to have. And we've seen already in the Ukraine crisis, I think, an important sort of down payment on this new vision. The first time ever, the EU has sent or is sending nearly half a billion euros worth of military equipment to Ukraine as the European Union, not as Germany or as France or, or as uh, you know, an in- Poland, an individual country, from what they call the European Peace uh, uh, Facility. Uh, and, and so this is a big, big, big move forward now that the EU uh, is taking on this uh, more assertive military role. 
Well, so you gave a couple of examples there about the increased spending, the fact that the EU is directly funding um, weapons going going towards Ukraine. Um, and you also spoke about a, a joint threat assessment that historically has been rather difficult because of all the different interests that the countries have. Um, but have the ongoing events in Ukraine changed the thinking on the strategic compass and, and EU hard power more generally? Well, my colleagues in the uh, European External Action Service uh, uh, who briefed me on this... Uh, uh, when I offered them a cup of coffee, of course, in return, have told me that uh, as a result of Ukraine, uh, the document has been sort of prolonged by about eight pages, which means that uh, there's been a lot of last-minute revision. Uh, and uh, that's why, uh, for example, the Strategic Compass isn't being presented today at the EU summit in Versailles, because, as you know, today the EU is holding this summit in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles under the French presidency, but it's been postponed by a couple of weeks to be presented at the end of March. So I think, uh, uh, you know, the mood vis-a-vis Russia, uh, uh, the bad direction in which Putin was heading, uh, the notion that Russia was uh, not just China, but Russia would also be a big strategic challenge to the EU, that kind of mood was there before the invasion of Ukraine. But I think that they have certainly now wanted to sort of uh, 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 slightly revise the way in which they describe Russia to represent the fact that Russia is no longer simply a a sort of a a spoiler, you know, for example, trying to push the French out of Mali, which happened recently uh, with the introduction of Russian mercenaries, the so-called Wagner Group. Um, But also uh, now Russia is much more a direct military threat to EU member states, including countries like Sweden and Finland, that of course are not covered by the NATO security uh, guarantee. And that Russian forces on a permanent basis are are going to be much stronger uh, immediately on the EU borders. And and so um, I think that one thing that is going to be rethought here uh, are these two articles that uh, were originally in the Lisbon Treaty of the EU back in 2010, 2.2 and 42.7, to use the EU jargon, on collective solidarity, you know, something rather similar to a Article 5 NATO collective security defence guarantee, this time being performed by the uh, EU. And the need to turn strategic autonomy, which was largely invented for the EU to do things that NATO did not do, you know, go to places where NATO doesn't go, like Mali, like Burkina Faso, like the Central African Republic, and defend Europe's interests there. I think European strategic autonomy is now being sort of rethought much more, Will, in terms of what we were talking about, you know, supply chain independence, reducing dependence upon Russian oil and, and gas, or on Russian raw materials like nickel, beefing up Europe's armed forces, being able to provide more assistance in terms of cyber defence to uh, EU allies that could be attacked, and increasingly what the EU can do to buttress NATO uh, as it ramps up its forces in Poland and the Baltic states and in the Black Sea region. So I think the thrust in general, you know, we've got to represent our interests in a more competitive world and be, be less, you know, naive about the threats we face. You know, bad things happen in the world, uh, even if we, the EU, stand for globalisation and democracy. So I don't think the the overall thrust has been changed, but certainly uh, the way in which Russia will be characterised and the sense of urgency that the EU needs to improve its military uh, capabilities, uh, they have uh, led to some last-minute revisions of the document. 
Okay, and I mean, you you touched there on NATO, and and obviously you've you've got a lot of experience working with NATO. So I do want to dig a little bit deeper and and ask you, you know, how how is the EU's current relationship with NATO, and and is this changing in in light of what's happening in Ukraine? Well, the the, the relationship has certainly improved. I mean, when I started out on the NATO. EU cooperation file, uh, you know, back in the uh, the 1990s, uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, colleagues, the uh, uh, US ambassador to NATO, said that NATO and the EU were two institutions uh, uh, five kilometres apart in the same city, but living on different planets. Uh, and it was true, there was very little day-to-day contact. But the realities of the world, of course, have pushed them uh, more closely together. Um, for example, they've stepped up their cooperation in dealing with what they call hybrid threats, uh, which is uh, exchange of intelligence on cyber. Uh, I remember, for example, when we had a couple of years ago the WannaCry uh, uh, malware or the Not uh, Petia. Uh, these things always have funny names, right, in the cyber world. Uh, Not Petia uh, malware, uh, which were uh, both of these were infecting you know, uh, European telecoms, European production, uh, the National Health Service in the UK. Uh, its uh, software went down for several days. There was a great deal of cooperation between NATO and the EU in terms of what are you seeing on your intelligence networks, what are we seeing on our intelligence networks, can we identify the malware, you know, what's the patch, uh, and, and the like. And uh, that, that uh, cooperation in terms of uh, resilience, as we now call it, that's the buzzword, you know, uh, are our systems secure, is our critical infrastructure secure, where are our vulnerabilities, uh, you know, joint, uh, jointly combating Russian disinformation. Uh, propaganda activities. There's been a lot of progress, uh, frankly, in in that uh, uh, area. Another area where things have stepped up is what we call military mobility, because um, the the EU has a program to make it easier for military forces to cross borders. Uh, you know, harmonising infrastructure, uh, hardening bridges so that tanks can go over bridges without the bridges collapsing. You know, clearing away pesky uh, uh, bureaucratic or customs obstacles when you quickly need to send a military force across a border. You know, you don't want to be held up at the German. Polish border for several days uh, as the Poles would say uh, or the Germans would say, sorry but you can't bring uh, lethal weapons into our country, Uh, you can't bring hazardous explosives onto our motorways Uh, have you paid the customs duties uh, on these uh, military uniforms that you want to bring in it it may sound ridiculous Will but generally you know uh, when NATO had to go back to collective defence uh, and uh, increase its military presence in Eastern Europe back in 2014 after Russia's annexation of Crimea. We did, we did experience precisely these kind of bureaucratic problems. And so the EU has got this programme called Military Mobility, where it has a budget of 1 billion euros, precisely to upgrade the infrastructure, clear away these obstacles. And NATO uh, has been a direct beneficiary because the EU has taken into account NATO's requirements as it does its planning. It's just a practical example of the way in which the organisations are, are, are coming uh, 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 to, 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 together. But there is, of course, considerable scope for improvement now. I mean, clearly we need a joint strategy in dealing with the long-term challenge of Russia. Clearly there's going to be the issue of assistance to Ukraine and even of Ukrainian reconstruction. Yesterday there was a, a, U- a Ukrainian minister who announced that already, already, and this 
war could still be in its early stages. Uh, uh, the cost to Ukraine of all of the infrastructure destroyed by Russian shelling is over $100 billion. Uh, and, and how we uh, uh, see that. Um, there's going to be, of course, uh, a, a big issue on sanctions, where NATO has a big interest in the EU sanctions working, because the more the EU sanctions work, the less likely NATO is going to be called upon to actually fight a war against Russia or, or use its own military uh, instruments as well. I think, you know, this whole issue of how we combat Russian influence in the Middle East and the South, where it's the EU with its training missions in Mali, uh, in the uh, Central African Republic, Burkina Faso. Uh, the EU has been more in the lead there than NATO, but I think you know, the two organisations will have an interest in coming together. So it's good that you know some of the bureaucratic obstacles about you know the Secretary General of NATO not being able to attend EU summits or EU Defence Ministers meetings, e the EU Commission not being able to go to the North Atlantic Council to brief. Some of those issues that we had in the past, which were largely mm -hmm. protocol and bureaucracy, have been lifted, uh, and the two organisations are talking to each other. Uh, uh, much more. It's also good, Will, final point here, that the EU has been more flexible uh, as it spends more money on defence. You know it now has this so-called European Defence Fund of €8 billion. Euros. It has a so-called PESCO uh, programme of different military collaborative projects. It's also good that the EU has uh, reached out to the United States, uh, Norway, non-EU states, obviously, to allow them to participate so we don't have, you know, duplication between NATO and the EU in terms of what we're doing in R&D or procurement. You know, we, we need better military forces and we if countries are spending more money... We which you referred to, that's good, but we don't want the money to be immediately wasted uh, because we're spreading it out over too many duplicating programmes. So more coherence in the military area as the EU spends more with what NATO is doing, you know, given we're all part of the same coalition, right, makes eminent sense. So I, I would say, you know, two and a half cheers out of three, but more work to be done. And well, highlighting the importance of kind of further cooperation between our partners, and um, some have some have said that through the Ukraine crisis, the, the UK has rediscovered Europe, um, and some have floated the idea of a European Security Council involving not only EU nations but also European allies such as the UK, as well as Norway, as you mentioned, uh, with NATO there, and and even Turkey. So, how likely is something like this? That, that's a fascinating question, and I, I agree with precisely that view. Uh, it, it's forced, uh, you know, the UK political class uh, and the UK media to stop talking about global Britain. You know, no more talk about sending aircraft carriers to the South China Sea uh, because uh, it, it's brought home to all of us that, you know, a crisis that affects the EU is a crisis that affects uh, the, the, the UK. Um, you know, already we have 20,000 uh, visa applications from Ukrainian refugees to come to the EU. UK. Uh, and although the British government has been pretty sort of miserly or niggledy up until now uh, in, in terms of uh, quickly admitting uh, those refugees uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, want to rejoin family in the UK, what has been interesting has been this massive pushback from the media, even the pro-Brexit media that usually supports the Conservative Party, and uh, of uh, the Parliament in general, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the British Home Office to say, no, you know, uh, let's be like Germany, let's be like Sweden, you know, let's show 
solidarity with these uh, refugees uh, and the Home Office has been forced to sort of walk back uh, and rapidly expedite uh, visas and allow more people uh, in. It's just a little example of how the UK agenda and the European agenda, which frankly, me living in the UK now, I have noticed this, have been rather distant from each other and now coming closer together. Uh, What happens in Europe uh, also uh, affects us. Secondly, the way in which, you know, the UK uh, has been sending its uh, ministers not to China, uh, not to India, uh, but to Poland. Uh, Boris Johnson has been in Poland. Uh, uh, Liz Truss, the British Foreign Secretary, sat down for the first time since Brexit with the EU foreign ministers in Brussels last weekend. You know, UK officials have been showing up again at EU meetings as they have to deal with issues like, you know, arms to Ukraine, uh, economic sanctions, uh, the refugee crisis, uh, and so on. You know, suddenly the the English Channel has become five miles wide and not 5,000 miles wide as people pretended that it could be uh, during uh, a Brexit. Issues like the Northern Ireland Protocol, which were continuing, you know, to bedevil EU-UK relations have been uh, pushed uh, 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 aside. Whether this will have a permanent effect, Will, or is temporary, uh, we will wait and see. Um, what what does it mean in, in the immediate? Well, obviously the UK is stepping up its presence in NATO, which means that the UK is doing more to defend EU countries. You know, the UK by sending 1,000 troops to Poland or ramping up its presence in Estonia, sending more aircraft and forces to the Black Sea, is basically saying we're going to do more to defend the EU because these are EU borders, EU countries. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, the e- uh, UK, has, uh, uh, even before the, uh, the war, has decided to reopen a military base in Germany and have a permanent presence in Germany, which it shut down 20 years ago at, at, at Senelager at, at the end of... Of the Cold War. The uh, UK, I think, for the time being, hasn't sort of reopened this debate of whether there should be a, a security treaty between the EU and the UK. I want this, the, UK, the EU wants this, but the Brexiteers in the Conservative Party uh, rejected this. Uh, uh, and so I don't immediately see it being revived, not by the present government. But what you are seeing is that the UK is stepping up its uh, cooperation with other regional frameworks in in in, in Europe? The Northern Group. You, uh, uh, there was a meeting uh, recently with Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, and the Scandinavian countries, most of which are in the EU, which are uh, uh, quite close to the UK uh, in terms of you know maritime exercises, military planning, air defence, and so on. This this week in London, Boris Johnson held a meeting with the Visegrad four, all members of the European Union, uh, again, to talk about you know, defence and security in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, the uh, Brits have, de- have joined President Macron's European Intervention Initiative, which is bringing the, uh, the heads of the armies together to talk about you know, uh, Africa, stabilisation missions, uh, uh, what we do to fight the jihadists uh, where they uh, reform. So willy-nilly, although the UK is still sort of circumventing Brussels, but 
but you know, beginning to see that it has to talk to Brussels. The, the the UK is becoming more enmeshed in different kinds of European frameworks as a result of this crisis. Uh, the energy crisis, which is affecting Europe with Russian gas and oil, particularly as the UK has said it's going to stop buying Russian gas, again gives the UK a vested interest in cooperating with the EU on energy security. You know, the British motorist is suffering at the petrol pump as much as the German motorist. And we'll finally... One thing that has really been good about this crisis is that the UK has suddenly realised that we've got to stop, you know, being a home for Russian dirty money. You know, Londonistan, London grad are finally being rolled up. Uh, Roman Abramovich can't sell Chelsea Football Club any longer. Uh, as you've seen, the London Stock Exchange has said it's no longer going to sort of trade in Russian assets and so on. There's been this kind of gradual sort of wakening up in the UK that we can't proclaim, you know, European values of democracy and so on, while uh, in the commercial uh, sense, you know, playing host uh, uh, to Russian oligarchs and and allowing them to sort of, you know, buy up Belgravia in London or, or to, you know, buy up British newspapers or to spread levers of influence. And in that sense, also, in, in terms of trying to clean up our act, we are becoming much closer politically to the EU. So um, as a European federalist, hope springs eternal in the uh, uh, human breast. I just hope that it's a long, uh, as I said, a long standing transformation uh, and not just a sort of a blip on the radar screen before all of this silly talk of global Britain uh, is back on the agenda uh, here in the UK. Sure. And, and I mean, Jamie, we've spoken a lot here about the, the concept of hard power uh, and, and cooperation uh, on security. But after Ukraine and the Ukrainian crisis, is EU soft power still relevant? Well, I think the EU has realised that uh, it, it can't survive in the, this world if it's not aligned with hard power. You know, Frederick the Great, uh, that great founder of modern Prussia, said, you know, diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. Um, Al Capone uh, uh, put it, in his own way, just as effectively when Al Capone said, you can get very far in life with a smile, but you can get even further in life with a smile and a Colt 45. Um, and I think the EU is, re is recognising that, you know, it needs the Colt 45 <clears throat> and no longer just a smile, particularly in dealing with, you know, tough, tough nuts uh, like President Putin, President Xi in, in, in China, more assertive regional powers like Iran, like Saudi Arabia, like Turkey and the like. Um, so uh, EU soft power will still be a factor, uh, but I think the, you know, the EU recognises that that soft power is, is working more with like-minded countries that aspire to join the EU uh, in any case. Yes, there, you know, if you're dealing with, for example, an EU candidate country in Bosnia or countries like Kosovo, uh, obviously with Ukraine applying to join the EU a couple of weeks ago and the, uh, the ministers, the heads of state in Versailles today are considering what kind of signal to send to the Ukraine regarding its European aspirations. There, yes, you know, the values and the soft power clearly work. But the notion that the soft power, power works on countries with different political systems, no. I think that has been, if you like, the victim of the Ukrainian crisis. The notion that you can charm the Chinese by talking about globalisation and get them to sign equitable trade deals. I mean, the EU has had a brutal experience recently where uh, uh, Lithuania 
one of its smaller member states opened a, a Taiwanese representation office in Vilnius and the Chinese reacted as they always do with a sledgehammer uh, by uh, basically uh, excluding Lithuania from the Chinese market, embargoing its goods, raising enormous tariffs. Uh, the EU has taken this case to the WTO, World Trade Organization in Geneva, as uh, as the EU, uh, showing solidarity with Lithuania, um, uh, just uh, like you know the European Parliament uh, has frozen the comprehensive agreement on investments with China after China, again, overreacted uh, to the EU clamping sanctions on, on simply four uh, Chinese officials for uh, the mistreatment of the Uyghurs a couple of years back. So uh, I think that the EU has seen that, you know, when it does try to sort of take rather mild actions, often its adversaries respond by over-retaliating and overreacting, And now, uh, if you look at what's going on in Brussels, the EU is developing a so-called anti-coercion instrument, which says, look, you know, our adversaries are not playing by the rules of the game like we are, you know, respecting trade agreements, keeping economic retaliation within economic area. Uh, they're, you know, they're using all kinds of political manipulation of trade to spread their influence or to undermine us or to bully uh, our members, to test our solidarity. So we in the EU now have to develop sort of anti-coercion instruments so that we're able to hit them back hard as well, to up the ante as a form of deterrence. So, uh, so yes, I do believe that you know, the soft power is still important, but unfortunately, with a dwindling number of democracies in Europe uh, that share the EU's values and are receptive to this, but with the rest of the world, particularly authoritarian states, uh, the ability to deploy a toolbox of reducing dependencies, of repatriating supply chains, uh, of being able to impose a cost uh, on political bullying through anti-coercion instruments, uh, all of these things are now coming into uh, play as well. In other words, the EU can't play any longer on, on the light side of the piano keyboard. It has to be able to play across the uh, entire keyboard and not just develop the instruments will, but also be prepared to use them. What's remarkable about the EU is that for a long time it was talking about the instruments, but there was never a consensus to actually use them in a crisis. What is interesting with Ukraine is this ability of the EU to now actually do quite serious things, you know, that go beyond the symbolic Magnitsky, as they were called, acts of simply, you know, putting sanctions on a couple of Russian oligarchs, uh, which wasn't really going to hurt anybody. But now, you know, uh, sanctions like yesterday uh, that the EU adopted against the entire Russian parliament, uh, you know, against banks, uh, uh, where the EU knows that there will be a retaliation against the EU. This ability to actually uh, accept um, sacrifice on your own side to stand up for your values. This for the EU is quite new because in the past it was always, oh yes, we're going to stand up to them, but not if it means any sacrifice on our side. Mm -hmm. This now political willingness uh, to, to cross that Rubicon, will it last again? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Well, Jamie, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and thank you very much for sharing your insights with me. Well, again, thanks very much for the opportunity today and hopefully there will be a third time. Uh, but again, thank you. So thanks once again to Professor Dr Jamie Shea for sharing his insights with us. As always, that is but one perspective. But what are your thoughts on this issue? Do you agree or disagree with Jamie? Or would you add something to what he had to say? 
This series is running alongside the EU's pan-European dialogue process, the Conference on the Future of Europe, and the EU wants to hear your thoughts. I have posted the link for the conference website in the information on this episode, where you can submit your thoughts and ideas on this and all other topics connected to the future of the EU. Over the last months, Links Europe and the City of The Hague, with the support of The Hague Humanity Hub, have been organising a series of conversations on the future of Europe in the world, giving people in The Hague and beyond a chance to discuss some of the important issues facing our continent. If you are interested, go to commonspace.eu where you can find all the reports from these conversations, as well as news, analysis and commentary on Europe and its neighbourhood. If you want to keep up with what's happening in our city, you can follow Links Europe on Twitter at Links Europe or The Hague Municipality at City of The Hague. Thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands.